Welcome to episode 18 of the Security Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated security business sector. My name's Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Security Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the security event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 7th, 8th and 9th of September 2021. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Despite the accelerated migration of CCTV systems to IP networks, it appears that facilities management and security departments still manage one-third of all medium and large-sized businesses' CCTV systems in-house. That's one of the key findings of a study commissioned by the NW Security Group and conducted by market research firm Apilium. Commenting on that news, Frank Crowell, Managing Director at the NW Security Group, stated, It's interesting that, even though 61% of all CCTV systems are now on the network and the cloud CCTV migration trend is accelerating, a third of all firms we captured in this study are still relying on in-house FM or security teams to optimise their CCTV systems. This indicates to me that there's a big opportunity for specialist security integrators to assist those in-house teams in updating and optimising their existing systems as the technology has improved markedly in recent years. Many would argue this has made it more difficult for in-house teams to keep systems optimised. Just over a quarter, 27% in fact, of surveillance systems are now managed by IT departments. On that note, Crowell observed, heads of IT have often fought shy of taking over the management of CCTV systems. However, many of them are being forced to take a deeper interest now that the technology and installer partner capability is available to move CCTV into the cloud, enabling firms to resource CCTV system management and expertise from OPEX via more flexible monthly subscription style CCTV as a service options. 29% of England-based firms with over 50 employees have now outsourced the management of their video surveillance systems to an external security company. Public sector bodies are slightly more likely to outsource security system management, with 31% of those public sector bodies captured by this latest study having fully outsourced their security system support and management functions. One in ten medium and large sized businesses have adopted a hybrid approach, working with a security installer for their expertise when needed, while still managing their CCTV systems in-house on a day-to-day basis. On that note, Frank Crowell explained, we're seeing more businesses looking to expert partners to help them to upgrade, improve and optimise their CCTV, such that they can then derive the most return from existing systems. It's a bit surprising to find that only one in every ten firms captured by our study has a declared policy of working with an external partner. This finding is worthy of further investigation during 2021. I suspect more will outsource to trusted experts as systems become more feature-rich and cloud CCTV migration levels rise. NW Security Group believes that the CCTV market is undergoing fundamental change just now and plans to investigate the implications of that change in a second study we run later this year. The first study, conducted in September 2020, indicated that businesses were starting to expect more from both their systems and the installers and contractors that support them. There was also early evidence that, as companies consider moving CCTV systems into the cloud, they're tending to insource more CCTV management decision-making as they focus on upskilling internally. These changes will be explored in the 2021 market study. When questioned over what criteria directors or senior management in charge of CCTV systems would use if they needed to select a new security systems installer, the top one for selection was access to 24-7-365 help desk support. 43% of firms with an existing CCTV system would select their installer based on the availability of around-the-clock support in case of incidents. Nearly as many, i.e. 38%, would select based on evidence of CCTV and network video surveillance capability and pedigree. However, so-called cloud CCTV capability is also becoming a major factor in the selection of any security installation partner. NW Security Group study discovered that nearly a third, 32% in fact, of firms would seek evidence of cloud migration and in-the-cloud CCTV management capability. 
capability when selecting a security systems installer. This is perhaps no great surprise given the fact that the same study also found that over two-thirds, i.e. 71%, of private sector firms are planning to migrate their existing CCTV systems into the cloud within the next 12 months. A quarter of firms also plan to select a partner based on evidence of strong partnerships with best-of-breed vendors and service providers. 32% would select based on a third-party installer's collaborative approach to working with us to improve our CCTV system and how it's supported. The NW Security Group survey was completed between the 8th and 14th of September last year by 101 IT decision makers of firms with more than 50 employees based in England. Only those firms with CCTV systems were invited to complete the survey. Respondents to the survey were heavily weighted towards senior operations as well as the security and IT heads of medium-sized companies, i.e. those firms with between 50 and 249 members of staff, and also large businesses, i.e. those companies employing 250 or more members of staff. 29% were IT managers, 33% IT directors, 10% CTOs, 8% CIOs, and 7% operations directors. The balance of respondents were operations managers or equivalent. The consulting services team at the British Standards Institution has outlined five key trends across the cybersecurity and data governance landscape for the year ahead, demonstrating how vital information resilience will continue to be for many organisations right across the globe. 2020 saw the impact of commodity attacks that evolved to combine traditional attack skills such as phishing, remote desktop protocol, brute force and network vulnerability exploitation with ransomware to maximise the return on investment for attackers. Ransomware will continue to rise in number and sophistication in 2021 across all sectors and organisations sizes. Stephen O'Boyle, Global Practice Director for Cyber Risk and Advisory at the BSI, commented, The cyber world is a haven for cyber criminals. We've seen how unscrupulous ransomware attackers can be as attacks on healthcare during the global pandemic persisted and ramped up. The trends of 2020 clearly highlighted new techniques to shorten time to pay. Attackers began to leverage brand and reputational impact by exfiltrating key data sets before encrypting and posting samples online and threatening full disclosure of data. O'Boyle went on to state, Ransomware will remain very lucrative and in 2020 will continue to evolve. Until the cost of perpetrating a ransomware attack becomes more than the financial return, we can expect to see an increase in activity. It's anticipated that 2021 will see data protection continue to dominate the regulatory landscape, with main events focused on the UK's transition from the European Union, the impact of the Court of Justice of the European Union Schrems 2 case ruling on Privacy Shield, the California Consumer Privacy Act-focused increase in anticipated lawsuits, cookie consent management monitoring, and the arrival of the e-privacy regulation. O'Boyle observed, high-impact compliance issues will dominate the data protection landscape in 2021 and require important reviews of compliance frameworks for organisations right across the globe. With the UK becoming independent of the EU, adopting a risk-based approach is required for companies selling goods or services in the UK or who are monitoring UK-based data subjects. They will need to assess whether they fall under the scope of Article 27 under the General Data Protection Regulation. Likewise, the almost 5,000 organisations who have used the Privacy Shield for data transfers will need to revise their transfer mechanisms and update or introduce standard contractual clauses following the SREMS 2 decision. Payment Card Industry Data Security Standard version 4 is expected to be published mid-2021, providing more flexibility for achieving and maintaining compliance. The new standard will run parallel with version 3.2.1 for 18 months in order to allow organisations time to adopt and migrate to meet the new security obligations. Version 4.0 will allow for an outcomes-based approach, as well as the usual prescriptive control set and validation processes that version 3.2.1 provided. It will introduce more flexibility and support methodologies and enhance validation methods and procedures including new future data controls. O'Boyle commented, We see it as an advantage when used in environments such as the cloud that are evolving rapidly. As the standard attempts to keep up with evolving technology and threat landscapes, we will see control areas such as encryption and monitoring developed to take account of these landscape changes. It's important that organisations subject to the PCI DSS are aware of the upcoming changes and effectively plan to include these in their annual roadmap.
Cloud migration will continue to advance in 2021 as it's used by organisations to protect assets, preserve user experience and add value. It will certainly be a benefit to those operating a hybrid working environment. 2021 will see the continued rise and shift towards the hybrid security methodology of purple teaming with organisations investing in attack and adversary simulations, i.e. red teaming, and defensive techniques, i.e. blue teaming together. Working harmoniously, both teams are used to maximise the information resilience capabilities of an organisation through continuous feedback, knowledge transfer and the adoption of best practice. In conclusion, O'Boyle told Security Matters, it's estimated that attackers go undetected on a network for an average of 146 days, which is a long time for them to gain access to privileged information. As attacks increase, being able to verify the effectiveness of existing security controls and vulnerabilities is absolutely essential. Purple teaming will become more popular as more and more organisations begin to understand the benefits of performing attack simulation tests for their organisation and, more importantly, gain assurance that they can respond in a timely and effective manner. Our first guest on this edition of the Security Matters podcast is Simon Pears. Simon is the Global Security Director at Sodexo and also Chairman of the Board at the International Professional Security Association. A chartered security professional and also a member of the Security Institute, Simon joined Sodexo back in 2007 in the role of Head of Security for the UK and Ireland. He was appointed to his current role with a facilities management solutions provider in January 2014. For its part, IPSA is a membership association for individuals and companies working in the fire and security sectors. The organisation was formed over 60 years ago to ensure professionalism in the management of security operations and is now an established and well-recognised worldwide professional organisation. During our interview, Simon reviews the achievements of Jane Farrell, his predecessor as the chair of IPSA, highlights the organisation's new website, outlines reasons as to why IPSA is now looking to broaden its membership and also points towards frontline worker representation on the board. Simon, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. First of all, looking back on 2020, in what key ways do you believe the pandemic has impacted the security sector and its constituent practitioners? Do you feel there are any positives that have emerged from an extremely bleak period for the nation and the world at large? Thanks, Brian. Uh, I personally first became aware of uh, the pandemic, commonly known as uh, COVID, I think, uh, from our teams uh, back in China in December 2019 and saw the impact on the security sector, where the security teams were an integral part of the control and response mechanisms. The demand for security increased with the extra roles, uh, such as uh, temperature checking, uh, that was needing to be implemented. But I would also add that the importance on all frontline workers was thrust into the spotlight. Um, and the vital roles they play in keeping business and industry functioning in every part of the world, whether they are technicians, nurses, cleaners, doctors, police, etc. This pandemic has raised the vital roles that they play. And my only hope is that they continue to be valued and respected once the vaccine is in place and the countries revert to a more normal pace. And this is where IPSA can represent the security sector as a holistic service and continue to promote their value. I I would also add that I have seen firsthand the opportunities that the security sector has given people who have found themselves out of work in recent times. And for me, it's really humbling to see these people now enter the industry and giving them an opportunity, but at the same time, the industry 
benefiting from their expertise and wider knowledge gained outside of the security sector. So our mission as a professional sector is to keep as many of these people as possible within the sector and for the profession to continue to grow and develop long after the pandemic um, has uh, left our shores. Also looking back, Simon, but this time across the last three years, what do you believe to be the key achievements realised by Jane Farrell, your predecessor in the role of IPSA chair? Jane has been fantastic. IPSA would not be in the place today if it was not for the stability and hard work that Jane Farrell initiated. IPSA, as a member association, was struggling to define its place in the hearts and minds of the members and for it to carve out what it stood for. But through, I believe, through Jane's calm and methodical approach, the association remained engaged with the sector and had a loyal following, which has enabled us now to use that as a solid foundation. Jane's passion for, for training and personal development are at the core of the IPSA values. And this is what our members appreciate. And I'm really pleased that Jane has remained with IPSA and is our Director of Training and Diversity within our new management structure. Now, IPSA has recently unveiled a new look in the form of a revamped website. As a newly installed chair of the organisation, how do you plan to action your stated intent of putting IPSA back on the map in 2021? Okay, so I, I feel, and I've been passionate about this, um, I guess, all the way through, that if we're to make security attractive and accessible to all, we must capture all levels within the sector and truly be their voice and provide what they need in order to progress. The, re the revitalization of IPSA is our digital-only model that allows us to offer all frontline members truly free membership. The creation and inclusion of our frontline forum, who are also represented on our board, is a bedrock of this new approach. We have a new and revitalised board of directors who represent the sector covering the nighttime economy, electronic fire, electronic security and fire alongside the traditional guarding business. So the new IPSA makes membership of the association accessible to everyone and IPSA will now represent the holistic security market. Now I think Question four, something. Do you want me to ask that one? Because you kind of sort of semi-answered it there, didn't you? So I ask it anyway. Yes. I'll ask it. I'll ask it. I'll ask it anyway. Okay. Part of your thought process is to extend IPSA membership to security and fire safety technicians, Simon. What's the reasoning behind this planned move? It is part of our inclusion and the understanding that security doesn't operate in in isolation. All parts of security are dependent upon each other or interact with each other at some point in the security service journey. 
whether that's a security officer operating an access control system or a fire panel or a, or a frontline technician engaging with the, the security officers where they first enter the premises. Um, and, and it's about how we they all provide very credible career paths within the umbrella of security. So again, this is absolutely where I believe IPSA should be. And the early indications that we are receiving from the sector is that these people are eager to join IPSA. And that's really pleasing to see. There's been much discussion about the soon to be launched app for IPSA's members. Can you explain what this is going to include and also how it will take the organisation forward? Yes, I mean, the, 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 the app is the, the, the bedrock of, of the new IPSA. In order for us to bring the free membership to, to the masses, to, 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 the, to the sector, we've had to streamline our, our back office administration. And the app will be the place where members can join up and administer their membership, uh, view their digital membership certificate, view and participate in member offers, obtain uh, and uh, receive free uh, training modules. We are determined as a, as a board of directors to make sure that access and participation in IPSA will be free for the frontline users. And then there, there are a couple more unique elements of the app, um, which we will announce uh, shortly, uh, shortly before we launch, but I'll, I'll hold off disclosing those uh, for, for now. But the, the app is currently going through user testing. Um, so everything should be revealed in the next five to six weeks um, on, the, on the hope that the user testing all goes well. But equally, people can sign up early um, that, that via our website at ipsa.org.uk and join the thousands of people that have signed up already um, in readiness for, for the launch of the app. So it's, it's really exciting times for, for Ipsa and it, and it, it really is um, going to be something special. A frontline worker representation on the IPSA board is another key idea that's been proposed. How is that manifesting itself in practice, Simon? I wanted to make sure the new IPSA board stayed true to our values. I, I didn't just want a board of directors um, that were very experienced, but also maybe one step removed from what was happening on the on the on the front line. And the Frontline Forum was created as a unique platform to kind of facilitate the, the voice of, of the frontline workers. So this forum will not only kind of act as a, a conduit to kind of access matters that are important to, to, to those frontline members, but also to introduce a kind of a self-development aspect. So these people are frontline workers and we're giving them access to board profiles. Um, and that is great for kind of career advancing advancement and for them to see how a, an association, a board association kind of works. We, we, we've managed to get the representation from three main areas of, of the private security sector, fire, frontline personnel and security. And I think we are really kind of pioneers in this approach to, again, keeping us true and honest to our, to our values. So our first group 
comprises of Deborah Stewart, who's chairman of the of uh, the, the Frontline Forum and is working with Secure Group. Fire is represented by Kyle Ashton from Chubb Fire uh, Services and Mark Card from Active Security Systems. So that the, the voice of the Frontline will emerge from their meetings and Deborah is the chairman um, and will feed back into the board. And we've also given the, 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 the forums a, a mentor to, again, guide them, coach them uh, in this kind of developmental journey. And the beauty of this as well is, is that they will rotate every 12 months. So again, we're opening up the opportunities for other frontline uh, members to really be part of IPSA's future and success. But most importantly, for us to be really close to, to what is really frustrating uh, the teams on the front line and for us to be able to kind of take that forward and kind of push that, whether that's with the government or with the regulators or with the wider industry. So again, uh, for me, uh, the Frontline Forum is probably the most important part of, of the new management structure. Returning to the news now, and Unified Security and Business Intelligence Solutions developer Genetech has shared its top five predictions for the physical security industry in 2021. The trends centre on innovation, privacy protection, the risks posed around cybersecurity, trust in the supply chain, and last but not least, the growing demand among security professionals for hybrid cloud solutions. While the world remains optimistic for 2021, organisations will need to remain creative about how they use, update, and redeploy their security systems across their facilities. This will allow them to start thinking more broadly about the role of physical security and what it can do beyond traditional applications to deliver more value for the business. We've already seen proof of this resilience and resourcefulness over the last few months, with many organisations quickly adapting to the new needs and challenges posed by COVID-19, using their physical security technology as a strategic tool in the fight against the pandemic. In many ways, the extraordinary difficulties brought on by the current situation have placed an increased focus on the role and importance of the physical security industry itself. Once the pandemic is finally in the rearview mirror, Genetech believes organisations will continue to look at their physical security technology and related data as being both strategic and enterprise shaping. In a bid to keep people safe during the COVID-19 pandemic, many organisations rushed to implement fever detection devices and other new sensors without necessarily having the time to consider privacy implications. Public privacy concerns related to COVID-19, contact tracing and other social challenges will continue to grow. These sensitivities will require the physical security industry to address privacy head-on and find appropriate solutions. Rather than hindering the development of new technologies, Genetech firmly believes that privacy will prove to be a driving force in the pursuit of responsible and innovative design, encouraging forward-thinking and ethical developers to embrace privacy by design methodologies. This involves proactively embedding privacy into the design and operation of IT systems, networks, infrastructure and business practices from the first line of code to the third-party vendor selective partnership and integration. In the physical security industry, building a software solution from the ground up with privacy in mind means that organisations will not have to choose between protecting individual privacy and ensuring physical security. Privacy should always be the default option and security technology developers who take it seriously will gain distinct advantages, notably so from their customers' trust. While cybersecurity has been an issue for some time now, it will unfortunately continue to be a vital concern in 2021. From schools and hospitals through to those private businesses and governments affected, there has been a rise in cyber attacks over the past year. In Q3 of 2020 alone, Trend Micro reported that there were almost 4 million email threats and over 1 million hits on malicious URLs 
URLs related to COVID-19. Much of this activity can be linked to the overnight shift towards remote working, which left companies scrambling to keep businesses running while also trying to secure corporate assets. This shift highlighted the fact that the traditional IT perimeter no longer exists. Businesses, organisations and governments will need to take decisive steps to strengthen their cyber posture or risk undermining the safety of their intellectual property, sensitive data and personal information. Choosing trusted vendors and deploying physical security solutions that come with layers of cyber defense is going to be vital. Security teams understand that built-in encryption, multi-factor authentication and password management are the first lines of defense. Beyond that, taking advantage of other features such as cybersecurity risk scoring, system vulnerability alerts and automated reminders for firmware and hardware updates are significant advantages in this heightened risk environment. Physical security technology has become an integral part of an organization's IT strategy and thankfully is now under the same level of scrutiny as other elements of an organization technology stack. Some governments are already discouraging the use of certain products from security manufacturers, citing trust and security vulnerabilities as the main sticking points. End users, and particularly so those operating in the enterprise space, are taking more time to scrutinise the manufacturers, suppliers and distributors with whom they choose to work. This includes asking vendors more pointed questions about how they manage emerging threats, how forthcoming they are about product vulnerabilities and their partner ecosystem, and also what their data and privacy policies actually look like. For physical security solution providers to be considered reputable and reliable, partners for their customers, they're going to have to meet more stringent requirements as part of the procurement process. According to Forrester's recent report entitled Predictions 2021, Cloud Computing Powers Pandemic Recovery, global public cloud infrastructure will grow by 35% to a market value of $120 billion over the next year. As online usage and remote working spiked during the pandemic, a global shift toward digital transformation, which was already underway, greatly accelerated. In order to thrive, physical security professionals will need to follow the lead of IT departments. In the coming year, physical security leaders should let go of the either-or division between cloud and on-premises security systems and instead embrace a hybrid deployment model in their physical security infrastructure. This would allow them to implement specific systems or applications in the cloud while keeping existing on-premises systems. With a hybrid cloud approach, security directors will become more agile in making decisions about how they can enhance scalability, redundancy and availability to suit evolving needs. They will also be able to quickly migrate to newer technologies, minimise hardware footprint, boost cybersecurity and reduce costs. Cloud offerings need to become an essential option for quickly adapting to changes and ensuring business continuity. King Secure Technologies has just signed an agreement to acquire Midlands-based Cougar Monitoring Limited, which operates a state-of-the-art alarm receiving centre in Birmingham. The latter provides a wide range of monitoring and response services, 24 hours per day, 7 days per week. The highly trained team members at Cougar Monitoring Limited deliver surveillance services, in addition to the rapid deployment of mobile response units and notification to the emergency services to ensure the safety of both people and property on behalf of its many clients. King Secure Technologies is a group of companies providing specialist solutions within the security and fire sectors and operating across and within a wide range of industries. With its headquarters based in West Yorkshire and satellite offices operational in Scotland, the Midlands, London and the South East, the company focuses on delivering cutting-edge and innovative solutions, in turn ensuring a full end-to-end risk management approach for its clients. Speaking about the news, Bob Forsyth, CEO at King Secure Technologies, commented, Our proposed acquisition of Cougar Monitoring Limited will further expand King Secure Technologies' leadership position in technology monitoring, while at the same time deepening and strengthening relationships built with our customers. We will now be able to compete in the rapidly emerging world of smart systems and the Internet of Things on a global basis. Forsyth went on to comment, The combined reach of both King Secure Technologies and Cougar Monitoring Limited amounts to over 58,000 connections Europe-wide. This strategic acquisition will enable us to provide a monitoring platform to our customers at both pace and scale, and indeed, enable us to respond to new opportunities as and when they arise. Robin Fisher, CEO of Cougar Monitoring Limited, responded, Started 24 years ago as the first National Security Inspectorate Accredited Control 
problem in the UK, Google Monitoring Limited has built its customer base to number close to 30,000 sites across the nation. We are now looking to shift our focus and growth towards becoming a fully-fledged technology centre, catering for the new and rapidly emerging global world of smart systems. Fisher concluded, I'm certain that King Secure Technologies will develop the Google Monitoring Limited brand accordingly, continue to support our customers and afford employees new and expanding opportunities. Security Matters, the independent voice for security and risk professionals, has recently launched a readership survey. All those security practitioners who take part and deliver their views and opinions on the magazine, its website, the Security Matters podcast and our wider digital offer will be in with a chance of winning an Amazon voucher worth £100. Regular readers will know that Security Matters covers the very latest industry news, details of prosecutions and updates on regulations and standards, in addition to featuring new products, services and technology relating to the security business sector both in print and online. In in addition to our regular Security Matters podcast, we also issue a comprehensive weekly e-news bulletin. Complementing the print proposition, our website expands on the material showcased therein with additional features and opinion penned by the leading professionals in the sector. Importantly, the magazine is actively supported and promoted by key organisations including the British Security Industry Association, the National Security Inspectorate, the Security Institute, ASIS UK, the Security Systems and Alarms Inspection Board, the Business Continuity Institute and the Institute of Risk Management, while also offering continuing professional development to readers thanks to a special arrangement forged last year with the Security Institute. In fact, Security Matters offers CPD to those who read the title, listen to the Security Matters podcast, or engage with our ever-popular webinar programme delivered in conjunction with the former Security Solution Developers. Security Matters is also the official journal of the security event organised by the 19 Group. As a reader of Security Matters, your thoughts and views are vital to us and will allow the team here at Western Business Media to continue to produce industry-leading news and features content within Security Matters throughout 2021 and beyond. Beyond. We absolutely value your opinions on what we do, so if you could take just a few minutes of your time to complete the 14 questions that comprise this survey, we'd be extremely grateful. This survey is being conducted on the SurveyMonkey platform and on a completely confidential basis. As mentioned, all those practitioners who take part in our survey will be entered into a prize draw to win a £100 Amazon voucher, but you'll need to add your contact details on the last question should you wish to be entered into the draw. In order to take part in the survey, please visit the website at www.fsmatters.com forward slash security hyphen matters and enter the term readership survey into the search box. Our second guest on episode 18 of the Security Matters podcast is Rob Watts, the CEO at Corsight AI. Corsight was founded by a group of passionate engineers and entrepreneurs with a track record of creating paradigm-changing products powered by a proprietary autonomous AI. The company's stated mission is to radically enhance the world of facial recognition technologies. The business is jointly headquartered in the US and the UK, with R&D offices in Israel. From early 2007 until November 2015, Rob served as Sales Director at Northgate Public Services. He then spent two and a half years as Regional Sales Director for Europe at the NEC Corporation, with a focus on cybersecurity, biometrics and facial recognition. Rob's skills in facial recognition were honed still further during a two-year spell with Digital Barriers before he moved to Corsight in July last year, initially taking on the role of Executive Vice President for Europe. In addition to informing the readers of Security Matters what Corsight is all about as a company, Rob goes on to explain the importance of Tony Porter's recent appointment with the business and also goes on to outline how he believes facial recognition technology will develop over the next two to three years. Recently, there's been talk of facial recognition being able to detect people's faces, even when they're wearing face masks, Rob. Is this a genuine breakthrough, or do you believe there are bigger challenges ahead for the industry? I think, interesting point. We at Corsight have been working on this technology for some time prior to COVID, even on the basis that, you know, we're 
working in difficult, challenging areas, sometimes combative areas. So people do tend to wear face masks to hide their uh, hide their identity. We at CoreSight realistically only need 50% of the face to be able to recognize a face. It's interesting that the market clearly has woken up to this, but beware in that what a number of organizations are doing is they're ingesting images of people in face masks and then getting recognition of those people in those face masks. That's not really accurate. We only we need one image of the person. That image of the person, we will score against whether they've got a face mask on or whether they haven't got a face mask on. Ingesting an image will lead to lots of false positives if you're ingesting an image of that person in a face mask. So just be aware of that. In terms of the second part of your question, I think the biggest challenge or the bigger challenges for the market are really in terms of adoption of the software from an accuracy perspective. The two challenges for us as a a technology community are to drive through with speed and accuracy and give the customer, the end client and the public confidence in what we're doing and also be able to give an accuracy of result. Those are the challenges. Now, as a business, CoreSight is relatively new to the security market, of course. Can you tell us about the company's technology and also where it's being deployed at present, Rob? I can give you some of that. Clearly, a lot of our customers being in the policing, intelligence services don't like us talking about where they're using the software and and so on. But we're a global business. Uh, We're growing globally. Our software is being put through a number of evaluation tests, not least NIST. We've also just recently done a test with the Department of Homeland Security in the U.S., where our software came out top score above and beyond every other technology platform in the market. So we're hugely, hugely pleased with that. And I'm amazingly proud of what our business is doing. The technology itself is based upon autonomous AI. We'll need another podcast, Brian, to talk about why autonomous AI is different from everything else. What we're doing is bringing technology that delivers on my first point, which is speed and accuracy. Our software will deliver the speed and accuracy that's required. And that's being evidenced through the results of these NIST evaluations, the Department of Homeland Security evaluations, and so on. We put ourselves really up there in the market in the top echelons of providers of this type of software. Now, of course, I just appointed Tony Porter, the former surveillance camera commissioner, in the role of chief privacy officer. We actually reported that story on Security Matters, Rob. What will that role look like in practice? Good question. So in the first instance, I think there's a lot of noise in the market around facial recognition, its adoption, the governance, the policies, and so on. So what I've asked Tony to do is two things. One is to come in and hold a stick to my back and the business's back to make sure that what we do with our technology is ethical and adheres to and sets, in effect, the governance processes for facial recognition in the market. We want to trade and be seen in the market as having integrity. You know, we want to be the most ethical provider of facial recognition out there. 
And Tony's going to help us achieve that. He, in effect, wrote, you know, was party to writing the law in the UK as to how facial recognition can be used and should be used. He understands all of the governance around GDPR and all of the other varying standards that are used around the world. I'm asking him in the first instance to make sure that our software adheres to all of that. The second thing I've asked Tony to do which is equally as important, is ensure that our customers, clients have the information that they need to be able to deploy the software in, again, an ethical and appropriate way, using you know, the, right, the right protocols, using the right governance, putting the right documentation out into the market. Honestly, as I look at the market, there is quite a lot of naivety about how to deploy this technology. And Tony coming into our business, I think, is a huge coup d'etat for us to be able to share with the governments, the clients, and also the market what we're doing around privacy. You've often talked about facial recognition technology having the potential to be used as a force for good, Rob. Can you elaborate on the detail behind that statement, please? I can. I head in hands moment a lot for me around this in that you get you know, the naysayers saying, oh, it's doing this, it's doing that, it's doing the other. Well, look, the first thing that most organizations, most police forces, if you just look at the UK, want to use facial recognition for is as a force for good. Their mantra is protect people from harm. That's why they want to use facial recognition is to find the, the, the bad guys, if you like, in, in, in society. Spin it round the other way. I've got a view that says that let's look at policing in the UK. Policing in the UK is now a lot about social care, not just about policing. So if you think about, well, okay, how many people in the community are there with dementia? Is there a dementia register? Can we use facial recognition to detect people that potentially are distressed or um, disorientated in the street? Because honestly, I'd rather be taking them home for a cup of tea than taking taking them to a police station or taking them to a hospital where they'll just get more confused and more distressed. Similarly, if you've got somebody, you know, maybe homeless, maybe a, a habitual drug user that is on a register, they could be a methadone user, they could be whatever. But if they self register, what we can do with that data is again, recognize who they are. And if they're found potentially comatose or, or drugged in the street, again, appropriate medication and appropriate um, action can be taken to potentially save that person's life. We're already seeing it being used as a force for good in casinos and the gambling community where self-excluded individuals are being stopped from entering a casino given that they've self-excluded and no longer want to gamble. So that is how we're seeing a force for good. That is how we're seeing people using facial recognition. And I think the whole of society has to look at that as how can we use facial recognition as a force for good rather than just knocking, knocking, knocking all of the time. Look, I am a chief executive of a facial recognition software provider. I don't want to live in an Orwellian society, and I don't think anybody else does. So let's look at the, the good use of facial recognition and how it can improve our society, not knock it.
And finally, where do you think facial recognition will be in terms of uptake and technology advancement across, say, the next two to three years? We're seeing this now. We're seeing the uptake now. If I look at the market, the market that we're in primarily is security and surveillance. We're already now seeing it being used for access control. So as the consumer sees it, as an example, I now open my iPhone with my face. It's a bit frustrating that I can't open my iPhone with my face with my mask on, but you know, I'm sure that will get addressed. The technology will become standard across society. As an example, why do I need a credit card? I've got a face. You know, I want to be able to start my car with my face as a security enhancement. I want to be able to open my front door with my face. Why do I need a key? All of these things are in effect, uses of facial recognition or potential uses of facial recognition as to where it could go. We're already seeing, as an example, gaming manufacturers talking to us about putting facial recognition on their console so they can do age-appropriate gaming. These are small advances, but you'll start to see the uptake and the prominence of facial recognition over the next two to three years. brings us to the end of this latest edition of the Security Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Simon Pears from the International Professional Security Association and also Rob Watts of Coresight for their highly valued contributions. Many thanks also to our podcast sponsors, The Security Event. The Security Event runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 7th, 8th and 9th of September 2021. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Don't forget to visit our website at www.fsmatters.com forward slash security hyphen matters, where you can view our podcasts and read the latest news and opinion from the security business sector. You can also access our dedicated features content and sign up to receive our weekly e-news bulletins. Please do contact us if there are any key themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag SecurityPod. On that note, do make sure you follow us on Twitter at WBMSecMatters. Please do like and share the podcast content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Security Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. To download the podcast on iTunes or Spotify, all you need to do is enter the term Security Matters into your chosen platform search box. We'll see you next time.